If you haven't met yet, if you're new to Jesus, welcome here. If you are new to Jesus, I say this on occasion, uh, wow, you have come on a very interesting Sunday. And so you, you will, the experience will be one where you feel like you are jumping into the deep end of the pool and learning to swim. Uh, but hopefully we can do this together. And we, we're encountering today one of the most difficult passages to understand in the Gospel of Luke. So here we are. Uh, this is going to be great uh, because for eight weeks we have been on it. We're on this journey towards the cross and resurrection, and we're going to celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday in a number of weeks. And so we are in Jesus' final days as we go through the Gospel of Luke, and we've encountered a difficult passage. But today, I think we'll see Jesus warning his followers that the temple in the in, in Jerusalem will be destroyed. I think we're going to see Jesus warn his followers that within a generation, the worship in the temple of Jerusalem will end. And today, I believe that we'll see not just the end of the physical temple, but we'll see Jesus building a new and greater temple of worship. And so Jesus, we believe you're here. Our Desire is to be a people apprentice to you, to come under your teaching, for you, you and your words to just shape our lives. And we would ask in your mercy that you would do just that here today. That as we read your words, we would be shaped to be followers, disciples, apprentices who truly follow you into life and life to the full. We love you. We thank you that you are here. Give us eyes to see what you would say to us today. In your name, amen. All right. Well, um, I'm going to read a passage that is quite long, okay? And, and one of the things that would be really helpful, I think, is for you to have your Bible open just like this and to actually uh, keep it open uh, throughout the next 30 minutes or so because um, it's going to be really important to see the context, to see what Jesus is doing. And, and we're going to listen to Jesus in love, warn his followers about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So we're in Luke 21, and we'll start in verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. 
For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you'll know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. This is the word of the Lord. So. <laughs> How are we doing? Earthquakes, famines, armies, sun, moon, and stars, fig trees, roaring of the sea. What is happening? Okay. This is fun. So in your mind, just click to fun. This is fun. Right? Why? Because we love the Bible, and today is a day where we get to unpack this message and study it and learn to see what Jesus might want to say to us living in the 21st century in Western Canada in the beautiful city of Langley. So this is fun. Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, please keep your Bible open. Uh, due to the length and complexity of these verses, I, I really think it's important for us to always have the whole passage in front of us. Uh, because I'm going to move around and I'm going to highlight different parts of these verses. So if you have it in front of you, especially a paper copy, you'll, you'll be able to see the whole thing and you'll be able to move around quite quickly. Now, as we seek to understand a complex passage, we need to first understand the main point Jesus is trying to address. Or let me say it this way. It's really important to understand the key question that Jesus is trying to answer. Are his followers asking Jesus a question about the end of the world? 
maybe? Are his followers asking a question about Jesus' second coming, his return? Maybe. But I would say no to both of those. I would say no. And, and, and before we create a hostile environment here, <laughs> just to let you know, it's okay for you to keep believing what you are believing about these passages. I, if this is new to you, what I'm presenting in the next 30 minutes, if this is new to you, then um, what, I want, what I would love to do is just have an open heart, an open mind to hear uh, a way of understanding this, these verses that are deeply practical, I think deeply loving, caring, and uh, it might be a new way for you to see it. So, I think Jesus is answering a question about the destruction of the temple. Let me say that again. I think Jesus is answering a question about the destruction of the temple. Let, let me set this up for us. Verse five, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. So notice the disciples, they're in the temple courts, they're walking around, they're looking at the temple and they're like, wow, this is amazing. Like, look at this temple, look at this building. Right? Now, if you're new to Jesus, the temple was the heart of worship for the people of Israel. Right? People would travel days, weeks to come at great festivals to celebrate um, and to be near God who was said to have dwelt at, at, upon the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies at the center of the temple. So the disciples are walking around and they're like, look at the beautiful stones and the gifts dedicated to God. Um, here's an artist's rendering of uh, the temple in Jesus' day. And uh, this is... Um, like a miniature version, this is, a, this is an actual picture of like a model that you can see in Israel today. Um, but this would have been what the temple, you know, best estimate, guess of what it would have looked like during Jesus' day. Look how impressive that is. You know, you can see the city of Jerusalem around the temple, but can you imagine? Like that, that is the heart of worship for the people of Israel. And this was the second temple that the people of Israel built. The first one had been destroyed. And you can imagine the disciples looking up and marveling, like what, what we do when we go to a big city and we see big buildings, right? We're just like, whoa. But how much more so are they marveling at just the beauty of the heart of worship for their people? And then Jesus says this. This is so shocking. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? Now look at the question. When will this happen? This, when this, like Jesus is saying this thing's gonna fall. This thing's gonna collapse. Now imagine you're walking around Parliament Hill in Ottawa, right? And you see the beautiful buildings in Ottawa and someone in your group that you trust says, pretty soon this whole thing's gonna be crumbling down, right? How would you feel as a Canadian, right? How would you feel as a Canadian? How much more would someone from Israel in Jesus' day feel about the heart of worship for their people crumbling? So Jesus says, the temple will be destroyed, not one stone will be left on another. And the disciples ask, when? When is this going to happen? So everything in this passage, no matter how bizarre and complex it gets, is about Jesus answering the question the disciples are asking. 
when will the temple be destroyed? Now, you don't have to agree with anything I'm saying, but are you with me? Is this clear so far? Okay. Now, one more helpful piece of information to notice. Towards the end of Jesus' words, he tells his disciples that everything he's saying will take place in their generation. Did you notice that? In their generation. Listen to Jesus in verse 32. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now put those two pieces together. This is about the destruction of the temple in their generation. The destruction of the temple in their generation. Now again, things are about to get complex and pretty bizarre as we keep going, but unless we stick to the topic, we will venture into quite diverse ideas about the meaning of this passage. So, here we go. As you look at verses eight and nine, if you have your Bible open, um, Jesus is telling his followers that they can expect false messiahs, false kings, false leaders, to pop up claiming that they know the time is near. Jesus is telling his followers that they will hear of wars and uprisings. You see, without instant world news on a smartphone, uh, people in Jesus' day would hear rumors of wars and uprisings from like travelers or people doing trade, right? Like you can imagine like a, a business person is coming into town trading certain, you know, uh, fabrics or whatever. And they're like, oh, did you hear about the war that's happening? Did you hear about the uprising that's happening? I mean, that's how news was communicated. And Jesus is saying, when you hear those kind of rumors, don't be frightened. Th these rumors are going to happen. You're going to hear about these things. And notice he says, the end will not come right away. Whoa, hold on. So wait, Matthew. You just said, this is not about the end of the world. And you said it's not about Jesus' second coming, right? That's right. So let's stick to, the, stick to the, the main idea here. Verse 32, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So when Jesus talks about the end, what's he talking about? What end? The end of what, right? The end of the world, the end of the age when he comes back. Because if he is talking about the end of the world or the second coming, it means you and I missed it. Oops, you know, here we are. <laughs> uh, no, of course not. You know, how would that even work? It was interesting to note, C.S. Lewis, great intellectual, misread this passage and thought Jesus was talking about the end or about his second coming. So he says, quote, it is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. The most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Lewis is embarrassed because clearly Jesus didn't come back within a generation. You follow? Is C.S. Lewis right? Did Jesus get the timing wrong about his second coming? The atheist Bertrand Russell in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, said that this is one of the reasons Jesus could not have been God. Jesus' own prediction didn't come to pass. It wasn't true. He did not come back within the first generation. Because just a reminder, he said, everything I'm saying to you is gonna happen within this generation. And if Jesus hasn't come back, or there was no end of the world, should we be disappointed here? Are C.S. Lewis and Bertrand Russell right? Should we be embarrassed here? No, of course not. We should not be embarrassed. I think Jesus is doing something powerful and unique here. The end that Jesus is referencing here, the end, 
is the end of the temple. It is the end of worship in the temple. It is the end of the sacrificial system as the people of Israel had known it. It would be the end of the line of high priests because one would become the high priest. His name is Jesus. It would be the end of sacrificial system because one would come to atone for our sins once and forever. His name is Jesus, right? And so this is the end. The end of the temple as they knew it. The end of worship as they would understand it. Did you know that Jerusalem was attacked and the temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD? Did you know that? Jesus is saying these words that we're reading here around 33 AD. And the city of Jerusalem was attacked by Rome and the temple was destroyed less than 40 years after Jesus taught this. Did you know that? The temple is destroyed within a generation after Jesus. Less than 40 years. How long is a generation? So what if this passage is not about the end of the world or the second coming of Jesus, but it's about this violent destruction that was going to come upon the city of Jerusalem? And what if Jesus, with great love, is going to warn his followers about this and he's going to prepare them for what to do when it happens? Now, with your Bible open, check out verses 10 to 19. You just, I'm not gonna go line by line. There's a lot here. But but look at Jesus warning them. Notice, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. He says to his followers, they'll seize you, they'll persecute you, they'll hand you over to synagogues, they'll put you in prison, you'll be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name. All of this stuff happened in those first 40 years to the early followers of Jesus. Just read the book of Acts, right? Have you read the book of Acts? It's the story of Jesus' followers after Jesus. Did you know that Luke and Acts are the same book? It throws us off a little because, you know, those who formed the canon put John in between Luke and Acts, but Luke is volume one and Acts is volume two, right? Written to Theophilus, the author is Luke, And it's volume one, volume two. It's the story of Jesus and then the story of the early church. So Luke is preparing us for what we're gonna read in the book of Acts. And all of this stuff happened in Acts, right? Nations were rising up against nations. The tumultuous political events of the Roman Empire, they were happening. The early Christians were seized. They were persecuted. They were flogged. They were kicked out of synagogues. They had to stand before kings and governors. Like this all happened historically to the first followers of Jesus. And so notice, Jesus tells them in verse 14, don't worry, right? Jesus says, you know, you will be given words from God for what to say to those who are persecuting you. And he warns them in verse 16 and 17 that they'll be betrayed and hated by some of their closest family members. And, And Jesus sums up all of this in verse 19 where he says, just stand firm and you will win life. See, this is the hope. Jesus is saying, when all of this happens, stand firm and you'll win life. Now, Jesus gets detailed. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Imagine this. I mean, it's very hard for us to fathom this. This is the great tragedy. That 
that Israel, that the city of Jerusalem would be trampled upon by Roman armies. Did you know this is the reason why Jesus weeps over the city? If you were to flip back a couple chapters in Luke 19, we see Jesus weeping over the city. The great city of Jerusalem didn't recognize her king. That was Jesus. Didn't recognize the king. Didn't recognize the movement of the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing. They continued to live in corrupt ways, defying God in many ways by how they lived and how they worshiped. And so he weeps over the city. Craig Keener, New Testament scholar, he writes about this historic moment when the city was destroyed. Quote, the war with Rome began in AD 66, and soon Roman armies had marched through the rest of Palestine and surrounded Jerusalem, then laid siege to it until it fell in AD 70. He writes, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem died in the war by famine, disease, burning, Jewish factional fighting, or fighting with the Romans, or they were enslaved in the year 70. It's horrible, horrifying events. And to live through that would have been awful. Do you notice that between 66 and 70, Rome attacks Jerusalem? And many of the practical things Jesus shares with his followers, um, flee to the mountains, and we'll see this in a second, but it's because there were windows of time in those four years where Rome would like back off or kind of move out of the way. And it was like, that's your chance, get out of the city, flee, get out of there. There's a monument uh, today in Rome that recalls this horrific event. Have you traveled to Rome and seen the Arch of Titus? Any show of hands? Anyone seen the Arch of Titus? Yeah, a few of you. Cool, that's great. The Arch of Titus. I'd love to see it one day. I'd love to travel to Rome. But if you're in Rome, you should see it. It's an arch built about 10 years after the destruction of Jerusalem to honor Titus. Who is Titus? Titus was the general who destroyed Jerusalem with his armies but he actually later became emperor of Rome for a couple of years. Now, inside the arch is a passageway where you can see one of the panels. It's called the menorah panel. You see that there, the menorah panel. Etched into the panel is an image of items from the temple in Jerusalem being paraded through the streets of Rome in the year 71, a year after the temple was destroyed. And you see right there in the middle, if you put the picture back up again, um, do we have a photo of the, yeah. I don't know if you can see it, but there's a menorah right there near the top. Um, that was in the temple of Jerusalem. And Rome ransacked the temple, the holy place of God, and, tr and took all of the plunder with them back to the city of Rome and paraded through the streets. I mean, this commemorates this. This is, this is what Jesus is warning about. This is a real moment in history. Jesus loves his followers enough to give them specific instructions about what to do. And verses 21 to 24 are very specific. What does he say? Flee to the mountains. Don't stay in the city. Many will die by the sword. This will be awful for women with young children. Why does he say that? Well, he says that in order to care for women with young children. Okay, so you, when you move, you have to run. You're going to have to just run. And if you're going to just kind of lay around dr drunk and drinking and just not caring about anything, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss your chance to get out of the city and flee. And when you flee, care for those who are vulnerable as you run. 
So Jesus is warning those he loves to stay safe. And just so you know, historically, it seems like this is exactly what happened to Christians in the city of Jerusalem. They remembered Jesus' words. They were ready. And when they saw those Roman armies, they, they moved, right? They knew what to do. They took care of each other. Now, two sections here that are very hard to understand. Let's, let's just look at those really quick. First of all, Jesus says this. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. As weird as these images of the sun, moon, and stars roaring, tossing of the seas, and heavenly bodies sound to us, did you know that they are poetic language taken from Isaiah chapter 13? These words that Jesus shares are a hyperlink back hundreds of years to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 13. You can check it out at some point this week. Isaiah 13, 9 to 13. Feel free to write that down. Check it out. In Isaiah 13, the sun, moon, and stars go dark as God punishes who? Babylon. When God punishes Babylon in a poetic way, Isaiah goes, the stars go dark. The, st- the sun stops shining. Right? This, is, this is hinting at a picture of God's judgment. It's a poetic way of describing God's judgment on Babylon. And so why would Jesus hyperlink to that? Well, maybe what's happening on Jerusalem is a form of judgment. Right? The corruption of the temple. The corruption of the leadership of the temple. And so he links back to Isaiah 13. The sun, the moon, and stars go dark. So that's one of the complicated passages there. But I think it makes sense when we see Isaiah 13. The second complicated one um, is the following. It's about the Son of Man. So some have thought that this passage really is about Jesus' second coming because Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Did you catch that when we first read that? Right. Let's read it. Verses 27 and 28. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Okay, the Son of Man. So, seems like him at his second coming, right? Well, I don't believe so. Um, This is Jesus, the Son of Man, but I don't believe it's his second coming. So let's study this. So the Son of Man uh, is Jesus' favorite term to refer to himself. He does this 77 times in the New Testament. And the Son of Man, some of you will know, is a hyperlink itself to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7. When Jesus uses the Son of Man, we should go in our minds and think of Daniel 7. We go back hundreds of years to the prophet Daniel. Where was Daniel? Babylon. Daniel's in Babylon. And he has a vision. Listen to his vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, who is this son of man? Well, This is a human who 
seems to ride on the clouds. The clouds are an image of theophany. It's just like, if you go back to the book of Exodus, clouds are where God lives, right? It's, a pre- it's an image of the presence of God. So son of man rides upon the clouds where? Where is he going? Watch me. Where is he going? He's going to, yeah, to be with God, the ancient of days. Notice the direction when Daniel has his vision, let's just be accurate here. When Daniel has his vision, he sees this human figure moving into the presence of God, the ancient of days. And the interesting thing scholars have pointed out is he doesn't bow. Who, who goes into God's presence and doesn't bow? Especially what kind of human does this? Goes into God's presence, doesn't bow. And in God's presence, he is given, what does it say? Authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations of every language worship him. He has an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Who is this man? Now, we we on this side of Jesus go, Jesus. We know it's Jesus, right? But Daniel, writing hundreds of years before Jesus, would not have known that. But But that was his prophetic vision. Now, so when we come to our passage, why would Jesus say this at this point? Why does he talk about this vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven? Well, notice, if we notice the direction of his coming, the coming of the Son of Man, many have thought that because it says coming, if you have your Bible open there, it says the Son of Man coming, we think he's coming here. Woo! Now, just so you know, our church and I believe Jesus is coming again. But we believe that because of other verses in the New Testament, right? Not this one. This one, the coming, is actually a different direction. Now you're like, wait, no, that doesn't make sense because coming in English means coming here, right? Well, let me introduce you to a Greek word, which is very unhelpful, okay? The Greek word for coming is the word erkomai. Say that to your neighbor, erkomai. Erkomai. And it can mean coming, going, arriving, approaching. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the clarity. So when you're reading your English Bible, the word erkomai is used many times, and sometimes it means coming, sometimes it means going, sometimes it means arriving, and sometimes approaching. Well, so how would we know what erkomai means here? Well, maybe we should go to Daniel and say, well, what what direction? Is the Son of Man coming down to earth? Or is the Son of Man going up to the Father, to the Ancient of Days? Well, it seems like from the context, he's approaching God. The Son of Man, then you could say, to, to translate Erkomai, is that when, rather than think he's coming to us, that this is actually means the Son of Man is going up on a cloud to be with the Ancient of Days. Or, to use another of the words, he is approaching the Ancient of Days. Does that make sense? He's approaching the Ancient of Days. He's not coming to earth. He is moving to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. In God's presence, Jesus has given authority, glory, power over all the kingdoms of the world. So when Jesus tells his followers that when Jerusalem is destroyed, this is huge. Okay, so a lot of the work we've done is for this moment. So just follow me here. When Jesus tells his followers that you're going to see Jerusalem destroyed, it's going to be awful take care of these women who are, have young children, flee into the mountains. It will be horrifically violent. Take care of one another, right? And in that moment, you're going to feel like you're going to lose heart. And you're going to be like, God, where are you? And you're going to be like, this whole thing is collapsing. Your own temple is being destroyed. 
right? And, 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 and the fear that would grip your heart. At that moment, look into the presence of God and see Jesus on the throne. I'm in charge. I'm on my throne. I'm sovereign even over this. Take heart. Even though Roman armies surround the city, the kingdom of God is coming because I am on my throne. This is not an accident. I I reign. I reign as king of kings. Even in this dark moment, I'm on my throne. Are you following? Part the heavens, and I'm on my throne. Now how? How can we say say that that Jesus could think that or teach that? when Jerusalem is being destroyed? How could we say that this is the moment that Jesus is on the throne, where we see the kingdom of God coming near? How can we say that? Well, two weeks ago, if you'll remember, we saw Jesus cleansing the temple. Do you remember when he turns over the tables, the money changers, and he's upset, and he has a whip, and he says, this place used to be a house of prayer, but now it's just a place of thieves. If you remember that moment, what is Jesus coming to do? He's coming to cleanse this place. He's so unhappy with the leadership of Israel, how corrupt they had become. He's so unhappy with the way this place, the center of worship and place of prayer had become a den of robbers and a place of thieves. And so he's come to clean house, to bring judgment, to bring transformation. And so here's what I think he's saying today. And these are my words, okay? These are my words. This is Jesus. He says, when you see the temple destroyed, take heart. I'm on the throne, and I'm building a new temple. Let me say that again. When you see the temple destroyed, know that I am on the throne, and I'm building a new temple. This way of worship is done. It's over. The end has come to this, to this form. But I'm doing something new. I'm on my throne. Stand firm. I'm building something new. It's a new temple. It's a temple not made of bricks and mortar. It's a temple made of people. You see, God doesn't live in a physical building. In a number of weeks, we're going to celebrate the moment on the cross when Jesus is crucified. What happens when he's crucified? Well, in the temple, a curtain is torn. And that curtain separated God from humanity. And the curtain is torn, and it was this poetic, powerful picture of God now no longer dwelling in a physical structure made of stone in in, in Jerusalem, but now God would come to be with us. The curtain is torn. God longs to dwell where? In us, with us. When, When you look at Jesus, he's putting an end to the old way of worship. Because what do we see in Jesus? There's no longer a need for a high priest because he has become our forever high priest. There's no longer a need for the sacrifice of animals because he has become the one sacrifice which atones for our sin. There's, you know, no longer any need for a physical temple because his own body, his own people would become the temple. Listen to Peter talk about the new temple. As you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
How beautiful is that? Peter's reminding the church that the temple of God is the building that is made of living stones. Did you know that you're a living stone? You're a stone that's alive. What a cool picture. And Jesus is the cornerstone. And upon him, this new temple is being built of living stones. All of us put together to become what? A temple where God lives by his spirit. No more bricks and mortar. A temple made of people. It's powerful. Um, I told you this story last year, but it was funny. A year ago, Tony and I went to an Alpha conference in London. And uh, we had a day off, and so we thought we'd go to St. Paul's Cathedral, downtown London. And some of you have been to St. Paul's, and you'll know it's just gorgeous, just gorgeous. Took decades to build. And um, we're there, and there's like a cross. All old cathedrals are built like a cross, right? And then, so I like wanted to stand like right in the middle, you know, just right in the middle of the cathedral. And I looked up, and I was just like, oh, this is amazing. And I'm just like looking around. There's artwork, there's carvings, there's beautiful stones, you know, everywhere. And, and Tanya kind of, you know, walks up, and she's just like, meh. And I'm like, what? You know, what do you, like, she's like, no, I like our church better. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, it's not possible. I mean, there's nothing in the lower mainland, there's nothing in BC, like, built like that, right? Like, there's just nothing. And what she meant was, and I knew what she meant, she meant that you're here, right? This is, this is her church. These are, these are the relationships of people. Who cares what the walls look like? You know, this is the church. This is her people. You know, beautiful stones. Great. Whatever. This is, this is relationship. This is the holy temple that God is building. And, uh, and so I understood what she meant. I mean, did I disagree in that moment? Of course, because this is just beautiful, right? Um, but I understood what she meant. It's relationship. This is the church God is building. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy what? You're going to have to say it really loud. Whoa, temple, there it is, <laughs> right? The whole building, it's a building, joined together, rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, in him, in Jesus, all of us are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Unbelievable. This is it. This is it. This is a new building. It's a new temple. And that's, did you know that we are the place where God wants to be? Did you know that you're the place God wants to be? He wants to be in you. He wants to be among us. Sometimes when I worship, I think of Jesus moving in and out of the rows here as we worship, coming up to some of you and whispering things that you need to hear, coming up and touching some of us here, bringing a healing, bringing a restoration, bringing a freedom, reminding you that you are deeply loved. Just when I close my eyes and worship, I just picture Jesus moving about the room, doing what only he can do. It's his temple. Uh, I've also told you this story too, but it was really a profound moment um, at that same Alpha conference, um, this North Korean woman who had escaped North Korea, she was a Christian, and she came to the conference, and she was like in her 70s, and she told the story of how, because of her faith in Jesus, she had been sent to prison in North Korea. And 
It was this powerful story where she said that she would gather in a North Korean prison with a few Christians that were prisoners there. And she would share her faith in prison. But the only free place to gather was in the area where the toilets were in the prison. And she said they would have their worship services there because it was the only quiet place that they could meet. And, and the image just hit me. Like that's the temple right there in a North Korean prison around a toilet. Here were these precious living stones and Jesus was happy to dwell there with his people as they worshiped him because they were where God wanted to be and you are where God wants to be. And, and this raises a lot of questions that we don't have time for today, but this, this means how we love each other matters and how we reconcile with each other matters and how we you know, love our neighbor and pursue purity and, and, and cultivate a heart of worship. Like it all matters. Like how we love one another matters as the new temple. But what I want to end with is simply this. If we are the place that God wants to be, that changes us and it means he's here right now. He's here. And there was a powerful moment of worship last year um, surrounded by different leaders of churches where we sung a song that we're about to sing right now called Worthy. And the lyrics are, Worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. And this picture of this new temple that our one job is to come together as the temple and to tell God how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is, how worthy he is. Because he's here. He's among us. How many of you today, as you come thirsty, dry, empty, are in need of God's personal, refreshing presence to come dwell in you? How many of us in the room today, as we worship here in a second, we would just say, we need you, God. We are longing for you. We pray you'd pour out your spirit. Remind us of your love. If we're the temple, then come fill your temple with your love. Let's stand together and worship. encourage you if you would like, only if you would like to hold out your hands as a posture of receiving with our eyes closed as we prepare to encounter Jesus who is here among us, a reminder that our prayer team would love to pray with you. Just they'll be at the front in the prayer room in the back. For any who are coming hungry, thirsty, in need of experiencing the love of God, of knowing God is near, being reminded that you're the place where God wants to be, just would you come forward and receive prayer, just a filling up of God's love. Holy Spirit of God, we thank you that you're here among us, your new temple. With our hands out, we pray that you would fill us. With our hands outstretched, just this posture of receiving, we receive once again the love of God. Holy Spirit, we believe that you're the one who pours out the love of God upon us. Would you do it again? Would you do that again? Jesus, you're the center of it all.
worthy is your name. Would you listen to this new temple of living stones just cry out, worthy is your name. You deserve the praise. You were crucified and you were risen. You were ascended to the right hand of the Father. You deserve all the praise. We thank you for life, for freedom, for grace, for mercy. We thank you for all of it. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name.